This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Today we're interviewing Dr. Bika Minga. They are a postdoctoral fellow at the African Center for Migration and Society at the Wits University. Their work explores the interrelationship between conceptual journeying of the term transgender from the global north and the physical embodied journeying of transgender asylum seekers from the broader African continent. They have recently written an extract in a book called Anxious Jobek, The Inner Lives of Global South City, edited by Nikki Falkov and Gwebes van Staden. Their extract is titled Marooned, Seeking Asylum as a Transgender Person in Johannesburg. Their book, Transgender Refugees and the Imagined South Africa, that was published in 2019, received special recognition in the Ruth Benedict Prize for Choir Anthropology from the American Anthropology Association and the 2019 Sylvia Rivia Award in the Transgender Studies. In other words, they have done incredible things for the LGBTQI community. That Shut out. That deserves a round of applause. Definitely. Good morning, Dr. B. Kaminga. You're speaking to Khomoto here. So as an entry point into this discussion, um, and for the benefit of our audience, could you explain what it means for a person to be transgender? Sure. So most people, well, everyone when they are born are assigned something at birth, and that's not baby. The doctor doesn't say you have a baby. They say it's a girl or a boy by looking at the child and every now and then that child is intersex and that situation changes slightly. Trans people uh, grow up with a sense of self that doesn't always align with what that assignment by the doctor has been at birth and over time attempt to express and communicate that they may feel that, you know, they might have been assigned a boy but they feel themselves to be girls. Well, they might have been assigned a girl and feel themselves to be a boy. And then within that group, there are those of us like myself who understand themselves to actually not be boys or girls and live in a space just outside of that. Speaking about that, what is the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity? So sexual orientation is who you're attracted to. It varies for different people, opposite sex, same sex, you might be attracted to many bodies. And gender identity is your sense of self, the way you feel and desire to present yourself in the world. It's something innate and has uh, very little to do with your sexual orientation other than perhaps it provides the first kind of compass point from where you begin. So you may understand yourself as a woman and be attracted to other women and therefore then you would call yourself a lesbian. Understanding yourself comes with age as well. As we grow, we understand ourselves better and our sexuality better. I read your extract in the book, Anxious Jobek, and can you tell us the inspiration behind that? So as a trans person, trans people are obviously part of my extended community and over time, I think... We've noticed as a kind of South African trans community, uh, more and more trans people from the African continent arriving in South Africa with particular understandings about what South Africa might offer. Historically, since the new constitution, we've seen more, more and more lesbian and gay people. But in the last, I'd say, 10 years, we've seen a lot more trans people, although the actual first person to ever receive, that we know of, to receive refugee status in South Africa, who wasn't a heterosexual person, was a trans person. And that was like back in 2002, 2001. So these people are part of my extended community and the ways in which I think that most people have an idea that maybe trans people struggle because their documents don't always align with how they present in the world. 
And my fascination, I think, in the beginning was just that this is so much harder if you're a refugee because you're already assumed to be a foreigner and there are a number of beliefs that go with being a foreigner, including the fact that you are already imagined to be a fraudulent individual. And when you align that with being trans, so you have a document that already says doesn't represent you and then you are a foreigner as well, there is a way in which um, fraudulency is, is kind of read from both ends into each other, making that uh, situation far more difficult. We know that South Africa is the only country in sub-Saharan Africa that permits same-sex relationships. And I just want to know, in African countries such as Somalia and Nigeria, homosexuality is punishable by death. Would you say that um, transgender people face the same plight in those countries? So, small correction. South Africa isn't the only country in sub-Saharan Africa. It's Mozambique now. Um, Rwanda has just, uh, is in the process of decriminalizing. There has been a steady kind of change in countries in sub-Saharan Africa, and we are seeing change after years of Which is um, good. advocacy and pushing for it to change. What happens with trans people is that because the language of who they are is not widely available, in many communities they are seen as kind of the epitome of what a gay man or a lesbian woman would be. So a trans woman is often mistaken for like the ultimate gay man. So when there are laws punishing gay people, trans people are often the first group of people that will come under assault from those laws because they are the most visible. A gay man who is able to kind of pass himself off as a straight man can generally be safe in society, whereas a trans woman is always going to, um, to some extent, be quite visible. And what would you say are the hardships that transgender Islam seekers experience, particularly in South Africa? South Africa, even though there are laws on paper, it's it's not a place that is, um, I wouldn't call it trans-friendly. We're still a society that has deeply ingrained ideas about what men are and what men should do. And we know this from the high levels of gender-based violence. Patriarchy is still a structure that is alive and thriving. And, and trans people then are one group of people that, are um, at the kind of receiving end of that extreme form of, of violence in South Africa more, more generally as a population group. Access to healthcare is very difficult. Access to identity documents. We have a law that allows people to adjust their documents. But once you go to home affairs, the home affairs official either doesn't believe the law exists or doesn't believe that you exist or asks quite invasive questions or wants to be shown things about your body or uh, to treat you with a complete disregard. And that's just trying to get um, an application across the counter. Once it's across the counter, there are any number of people that this application has to move through that can practice any level of transphobia or perceived homophobia. And with a slice of hand, that application can disappear. And in that time, a person might be moving through the world as a man and have documents that say they're a woman and increasingly become unable to access their bank account, um, get stopped by police, and the police want to put them in a particular cell, which creates a kind of threat to their lives, are unable to take out a home loan, um, can't get on, if you're a trans woman in particular, can't get on a taxi without threats of violence. When you go to the police, the police are saying, but you're a morphine, you deserve what happens to you. We're not a society that has very much understanding or empathy for the kinds of 
issues that trans people face. And I think that's an, another outcome of a kind of pervasive gender-based violence. And I think um, reading your extract, I read somewhere where you speak about um, how transgender Islam seekers are vulnerable to becoming homeless in Johannesburg. And I think you really just expanded on that and, and speaking about how it's difficult to get um, medical health care because you did mention as well that there are only a few hospitals. You named the few hospitals that do cater for transgender health. I mean, most shelters are single sex and when a trans woman or a trans man approaches them, they say, oh, well, we don't have space for you here. The one trans woman we know that did get accepted into a shelter was put in a drug rehab shelter for two months and put in the men's section. And because she had nowhere to go, she agreed, even though she doesn't have a drug problem, she agreed to stay in this men's section for, for two months. You're not allowed out because you're supposed to be breaking the drug habit simply because at least she would have a roof over her head. Yes. And um, as much as um, South Africa's legislation is really one of the most progressive with regards to the LGBTQI community, how much more do you think can be done to make the experience of an African transgender asylum seekers in South Africa better? So much more. I mean, until recently, I don't think that the, the state itself or the asylum system actually understood that there were trans people applying for asylum. And, and that's largely because if you read how sexual orientation is understood in South Africa's constitution. It's quite a broad-ranging understanding. So most people apply under sexual orientation simply because they're also playing on that idea that the asylum official is more likely to understand um, that you are being persecuted perhaps for perceived sexual orientation, right? So when people are trans people are, are persecuted in countries of origin, it's not because they're trans, it's because of the perception around it, that they are like the epitome of what a gay person might look like. So asylum officials don't often understand what a trans person is. I think more generally for trans people, you know, we have Act 49, which allows you to change your documents, but it's very rigid in the way it does it, and it expects you to access affirming health care. It expects you to have letters from a doctor. Many of us do not believe that we need letters from doctors. Many trans people don't need health care. They are happy as they are. The Act doesn't cater for refugees and asylum seekers. So when you arrive and you apply for asylum, and this happens in all countries in the world, your documents that you are given as an asylum seeker are the same, are based on what your gender was in your country of origin. So you're immediately misgendered. If you're a trans woman, you're still carrying around documents that say you're a man, even when you become a refugee. And then the Act that we have doesn't allow you to ever change those documents. So... For all intents and purposes, for the rest of your existence in South Africa as a refugee, even if you live your life as a woman, your documents will always say you're a man. And that's so regressive and inconsiderate. Very tough. Yeah. So in closing, um, and for the interest of our audience, are there any particular organizations in South Africa that provide support specifically to transgender refugees? So there's Gender Dynamics in Cape Town. Um, They've just released, as well as anyone's interested, a position paper on legal gender recognition and how it needs to change in South Africa. And that document for the first time includes the need for a way for refugees to also access services. Um, In Joburg, there's Iranti, which is a queer and trans media organization. But because of the need in Joburg, they've kind of pivoted and are also uh, assisting refugees. And then in Cape Town as well, there's PASOP, which is an LGBT uh, refugee organization. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. B. Kaminga, for joining us on the show and for such a very insightful, informative conversation this morning. 
Thanks an absolute pleasure. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1. Or stream by www.vafm.co.za.